Good morning and welcome to Sharper Iron. Spend the next hour with us studying the living and active Word of God, His two-edged sword of law and gospel, recorded for you in Holy Scripture, all about Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, and ascended for you. Thanks for tuning in this morning here on Worldwide KFUO, Christ for you anytime, anywhere. I'm your host, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. Sharper Iron is underwritten by the Lutheran Church Extension Fund, where your investments help support the work of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Visit lcef.org for more information. On this Friday, October 30th, we're studying 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1-5. through 5. St. Paul gives another reminder to Timothy as to why true teaching from God's Word is so important. Sound doctrine from God's Word is vital for pastors and Christian congregations because the devil and his demons are at work through their lies to lure people out of the Christian faith. To help us sharpen our faith in Christ as we study God's Word today, we have with us regular guest, Pastor Brian Flammy. Pastor Flammy serves at Emmanuel Lutheran Church in Roswell, New Mexico. Pastor Flammy, welcome back to Sharp Iron. Hey, thanks. It's great to be here, Pastor Apple. So we get started this morning, Pastor Flammy. Let's talk a little bit of context. We're in chapter four of this epistle. What do we need to know about First Timothy, the first three chapters going into our text today? Well, the first thing that we should know is that St. Paul is speaking to Timothy as a pastor and even as a pastor of pastors. He's something of a bishop in Ephesus. And, uh, and so as you go down there, you can see uh, he's going to be returning to a theme that he introduced at the beginning in chapter one, when he urged him to be on guard against people who teach against different doctrines. That's in chapter one, verse three. But then uh, not only does he warn against false teaching and false teachers, he then goes on to talk about sort of the, the central theme of the gospel, that, that Christ came to save sinners, of whom St. Paul says, I am the worst. You know, there's that famous verse there where, where uh, we marvel at St. Uh, uh, Paul's conversion from being an enemy of the church to being a friend of God and even Christ's chosen minister to the unbelieving world. And then after this, you have these series of instructions for the church there in Ephesus. So first of all, he's supposed to do what? He's supposed to pray and, uh, and to pray for the people that you wouldn't expect to. Like when we typically pray for one another, we, we think about our friends, the people that we like, uh, the people who ask us and, and on friendly terms, pray for us. You know? but, but he says, pray for our leaders, and uh, pray for, and pray for them especially for all people, not just for our friends, but even for our enemies, uh, because all people is included in the group of people for whom Jesus has has died. You know, he didn't just die for the Christians right now; he died for the sin of the world, and that's why we say the gospel is for the whole world. After that, he talks a little bit about headship, and then in chapter three, he talks about the qualifications for the pastors. And uh, there's a famous list there that the pastors hear about a lot as they're going through seminary. And then again, as they're being ordained and later on when they're being installed in, in you know, different parishes. And uh, those are good for every Christian congregation to become very familiar with. You know, uh, I don't know. We just got done having our uh, district representative. Uh, he was like an executive representative come through the different circuits and he was encouraging reviews of the pastors to be done by the congregations, you know? Mm. And, uh, and I said, that's fantastic. I'm so glad. Let's look at the Holy scriptures and what they require of the pastor. You know, let's use those rubrics. Let's use the rubrics that were set down and, and, you know, the paperwork that we use for, for call and ordination and, uh, using those rubrics, you know, that helps the, the church to understand what is your pastor here for? Is he a, a mental health specialist? Is he a janitor? <laughs> is he a, a special events coordinator? No, he's here to preach uh, the gospel that Christ Jesus came to save sinners, of whom we should consider ourselves to be the worst. You know, Jesus died for us, and that's an amazing, amazing message. And it's the pastor's sole duty, really, to preach that saving message into our ears. You know, to give us the comfort of uh, uh, and the knowledge of knowing that that God has chosen us uh, to be uh, pulled out of this sin and death and the clutches of the devil to receive eternal blessing with himself in heaven and in the resurrection. Uh, so, yes, uh, those instructions are good. He talks about overseers or, you know, bishops, really, and then deacons. 
Uh, I don't know about if you have thought a lot about this, Pastor Apple, um, but I think that this is a distinction that you and I, from our vantage point in history, can't make much of a difference of. Uh, it seems as if he is speaking of men who are both overseers and deacons who are both in the office of pastor. Hence, uh, e even the, the instructions concerning the husband of one wife, it applies to both. Uh, that's what I was taught anyways, as I was studying First Timothy with my professors a long time ago, and I've kind of remained on that opinion. What do you think, Pastor Apple? Well, we, we talked about that yesterday a little bit. And of course, I, mm. since we're pre-recording, you don't have the benefit of, of listening to that <laughs> and, and disagreeing with us, perhaps. We, <laughs> we, we, we connected that office in, at the end of First Timothy 3, verses 8 through 13, more to the mm. office that is established in Acts chapter 6 with the uh -huh. deacons there that are, are set aside, not so much for the, the preaching of the word, which the apostles are, are concerned mm -hmm. with, but more mm -hmm. with the, the waiting of tables. But yes, but I, I always hesitate to disagree with, with you. you maybe, <laughs> maybe if you'd been assigned to that text, you would have convinced me otherwise. There's, there's this paper that's floating around out there by Norman Nagel about uh, Acts chapter 6 and the servants at the table. And he makes the case, and I am really, uh, yeah, I really want to agree with him, where he says, look, the apostolic ministry of the 12 is to be sent to different places, to the ends of the earth, to preach law and gospel, right? To establish new churches through that preaching of the word. Uh, and the problem was, at least I think according to his argument is that these, they were staying in Jerusalem when in fact they needed to be moving on. Hmm. Uh, and so they were uh, participating in what we would call the distribution of the Lord's supper, which Nagel took to be what was referred to there as the ministry of the tables. Hmm. And, and so they appointed pastors, right? Uh, something that we see St. Paul doing right here with Timothy and the instructions to Timothy, they appointed pastors to serve the tables, which is to distribute, the Lord's Supper, so that the apostles could give themselves to the work of the ministry, especially the particular ministry of the of the apostle, the one who is sent to the ends of the earth, you know, uh, so that they wouldn't be locked down there in Jerusalem, but they would be leaning on uh, the office of the holy ministry to take up the work that they started. It's very much like how St. Paul talks about uh, the work of the, the, the pastors who followed in his footsteps in Corinth, I think. Mm. You know, he was there to plant. Other people would come and, and, and water and tend. And uh, the Lord gives the growth. And so, it's, it, it, so this is so that's so that's the idea. It's not mere tables. It's not just distribution of food like at a kitchen. It's the the holy food of Jesus, body and blood for the forgiveness of sins. And now you have pastors who have been called into that place to do that distribution. A couple of points of evidence for that. Hmm. Uh, the ministry of Stephen, uh, the very first Christian martyr, and also the, the holy ministry of Philip. When you hear those men are included on that list, and the next time you hear about them, they're not uh, humanitarian experts in Jerusalem. What are they doing? They're in the region preaching, carrying out the office of preaching. And so I think that makes for a pretty, at least from my perspective, a pretty convincing case uh, that the, the, the deacons referred to there are in what we would call today parish pastors, or maybe pastors have been called uh, to a, uh, an area. You know, this is where they work uh, to, to preach the word and to, minister, to do ministry and to evangelize. What do you think about that? You're going to have to send me that paper, I think, because I, <laughs> I hesitate to disagree with Dr. Nagel. Yes, and the next thing you're going to do is tell me something that Martin Luther wrote, and then I really can't disagree with you. No, I, I mean, I, 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 that's an interesting argument, and and not to get too far afield from that text, but Stephen and Philip in that regard do stand out because on the one hand they're being set aside there in Acts six, but then mm. the things that you see them doing don't seem to be what at least it it seems to be that was just said. And so I, I, I appreciate the way that, that that argument does hold those things together and seeing the, the deacon as more of, like you said, a, a local 
parish pastor as opposed to the apostles who are going this way and that almost i mean that's the way saint paul describes his ministry i think it's in mm. romans where, where he talks yeah. about you know i'm not the one to stick around i'm i gotta go on with the gospel and and i'm so i'm, I'm sympathetic to it I, I i could i could see it i don't know that i've been convinced yet but i, I could see what you're saying <laughs> so with with that pastor Fleming, we, we come to first timothy chapter four the mm-hmm. first five verses is what we've got. And as you said, St. Paul is bringing back up that theme that he brought out in chapter one of the importance of sound doctrine and holding on to the truth, which he did give us a teaser of at the very end of chapter three. He, he brought up that the church, the church of the living God is, is also a pillar and a buttress of the truth. And he's talked about this mystery of godliness that we confess. And, and so now he's he's back on that theme of the importance of sound doctrine. I'll go ahead and read the text for us here in First Timothy four. We'll we'll begin to discuss. Now the Spirit expressly says that in later times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons, through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared, who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving. By those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving, for it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. That is our text for today, 1 Timothy 4, verses 1 through 5. Pastor Flamey, one of the things that, that stands out, and maybe this isn't in Paul's mind as much, but when we read it today, I think it's we need to comment on it at least briefly. Paul says, now the spirit expressly says, the spirit mm, expressly mm. says, is, is Paul talking direct revelation here? Is, is this from, is he drawing this from Holy scripture somewhere? What does it mean when Paul, the apostle states the spirit expressly says, well, we do know that having the office of apostle, uh, we should count on St. Paul to reveal God's word and will directly, whereas the parish pastors, like we're talking about, and the rest of the church have to go through the indirect means, and yet the Christ-sanctified means of the apostolic word, right? That has been written down for our benefit for posterity. Uh, Posterity, that's how you say it. Uh, So that being said, I, I mean, it could be, that this is direct revelation, but more likely this is the same preaching that has been going around in the Christian church for some time now that originated not with the apostles and and uh, an independent revelation, but the revelation that came from Christ himself. A good piece of evidence here would be the verse uh, uh, in Matthew chapter 24. It's verse 24. If you have your Bibles, you can open up to that. Well, I'm going to type it up here in my computer. (laughs) (laughs) That's the modern day scroll. I know, right? Let me open the scroll. Here it is. (laughs) For false, this is Jesus speaking during Holy Week uh, to his apostles and, and telling them about what is to come. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. The Holy Spirit, of course, you remember this, came to rest on Jesus at his baptism, visibly, to teach us that when Jesus speaks, there is the Holy Spirit revealing the heart of God the Father and everything that we need to know for salvation and good works. So I, when I see now the Spirit expressly says, my what I always think here is that, okay, that he's St. Paul is speaking about something that is known from Christ himself. And, it, and we can find that. Uh, we can find that in Matthew chapter 24, verse 24. And also this is going around this kind of preaching about how in the last days people will be falling into false doctrine. They will start following false teachers and people will fall away from the faith. And so a great example of this uh, would be uh, another preacher that would be in the same circle there at Ephesus, that's St. John. And if you go to chapter 2, verse 18, uh, St. John says, Children, it is the last hour, 
And as you, isn't that funny? So St. John says, uh, not in the last times, but now is the last time. <laughs> and as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not of us. That is, they were not of the apostolic word. Uh, uh, the, you know, the, the promise of Jesus to the 12, especially that they would be the bearers of the true doctrine. And uh, that teaching is especially founded at the end of John's gospel in his last Monday, Thursday discourse with the apostles. And uh, we'll probably talk about that more in just a sec. And then also you have first John chapter four, the first six verses there, something that I would consider to be a parallel with what St. Paul says in first Timothy chapter four. Uh, so St. John says, beloved, don't, uh, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world, right? And then if you jump down to verse uh, six, you could see uh, St. John says, whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. But uh, by this, we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. Right. And so everybody who listens to the apostolic doctrine, that is the doctrine of the of those who are handpicked by Christ to preach and to teach, uh, then they those people who hang on to the, 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 the apostolic doctrine, they have Christ, they have the word, they have the Holy Spirit. Uh, it, but, but those who wander away from that. Right. And say, well, I have found another teaching or better teaching. Then then then, you know, they are of, as St. John says, the spirit of error. Uh, so this would so would say to bring this back around to what St. Paul says, the spirit expressly says this Holy Spirit was indeed speaking directly through the apostles. And also the Holy Spirit was speaking in the inscripturated word, which was probably beginning to be circulated around this time with the first gospels, maybe Matthew and Mark making their way through the churches. People would have been hearing Jesus's end times discourse and remembering what he said when they hear St. Paul say the spirit says. Well, and especially thinking about St. Paul writing this to Timothy, a pastor there in Ephesus and a pastor of pastors in Ephesus, you know, thinking and when exactly First Timothy was written, perhaps we don't know for sure, but likely later in Paul's life, at least the Lutheran study Bible suggests about A.D. 65, which is, is likely after the Gospel of Matthew has been written down and as you said is is likely starting to be circulated and so i, I mean and again I, I suppose i couldn't say this for a fact but it is it's interesting to think of you know what what paul is saying to timothy is here is saying hey you know where jesus says in matthew chapter 24 that's i mean that's what he's referring to here mm. and and I, I again part of the reason that i asked that question is because we do live in an age in, in which there are those who would claim to know what the spirit says apart from the scriptures. And of course, that's a, a problem that Luther dealt with in the small call articles when it came to what is called enthusiasm, that, that those, and not enthusiasm, like we're really excited about it, but enthusiasm as if I can listen to what God says apart from his word and his sacraments. And, and I, it just seemed like that was something we should address with this mm. text, lest we accuse Paul unfairly of being an enthusiast, because I don't think he is. Oh, not at all. Look, the apostles have the promise from Christ uh, that they will re recall everything that Jesus had taught on this earth. Yeah. You know, they had the special promise of the Holy Spirit in that way. You and I don't have that promise. And so what do, our access to the Holy Spirit and the truth about God that the Holy Spirit brings is only through the apostles' word. They're the ones who give us access uh, uh, to the Heavenly Father by showing us Christ crucified for our sins, right? And when we hear the preaching of Christ crucified for our sins, there is the Holy Spirit in the word that's being coming, that's coming into our ears to convert our hearts and to keep us in the true faith. Uh, apart from the, that, me, those means of word and sacrament, uh, you have no promise whatsoever of uh, uh, you have no promise whatsoever uh, of access to God and access, you know, to spiritual truth. And, and then we mentioned First uh, John chapter 4. There he said, I, I'm going to use St. Paul's word here, expressly. <laughs> he, he, he mentioned it explicitly. That if they don't come from us and use the words that we're using and confess uh, the mystery of godliness that we confess, then they are not of the spirit of truth. They are of the spirit of error, 
right? They're from the devil and the demons. Well, and, and St. John uses the term antichrist. I think you, mm. you when you were reading from St. John, he, he uses that term. St. Paul here connects it to deceitful spirits, teachings of demons, which this is, I mean, this is really serious stuff. And I think one of the things that at least I find helpful in the, the way that Paul and John both do this when it, they connect this false teaching to deceitful spirits is it is it helps us address those who would who would claim to be spiritual but not religious well mm. what kind of spiritual are you are you holy spiritual or are you well the deceitful spiritual are you are you clinging to the teaching of the truth that the holy spirit gives in the scriptures or are you clinging to some other teaching which paul and john both connect very clearly to demons to the enemy mm. mhm yeah, that's right. In fact, when it comes to every spiritual attack against the true teaching of the church, it is demonic in origin. I would go so far as to say that. And St. Paul says much the same in Ephesians chapter 6, where he says, we don't battle against flesh and blood, right? Uh, but the powers and the, uh, but the, uh, the demonic powers of, this, of the air. Uh, what his point is that even though we see in our the false doctrine coming from a human being's mouth, right? The origin of that false doctrine is not purely human. It is, in fact, a lie that originated with Satan and the demons themselves. And that's the pattern of Satan and the demons. Uh, you know, the, the origin of false teaching, beginning in the Garden of Eve, is that Satan came to tempt Eve, to give her false teaching, that if you eat of this fruit, your eyes will be opened and you will become like God, right? Uh, so he, he mixes together the words of orthodoxy with a, with a, a, a life-killing, heterodox meaning, and it led to sin for our entire race. So the demons still work in the same way. They tempt uh, our flesh to wander away from the word of truth into, into other words that might sound pleasing to us and good and spiritual and not religious, but nevertheless, they are demonic of origin, and their end is is uh, spiritual death. It, this this reminds me a little bit of of what Luther writes in the sixth petition in the Catechism, where he he talks about what we're praying for when we when we pray, "Lead us not into temptation," and, and we ask that God would guard and keep us, so that the devil, and that's where we're talking here, would not deceive us or mislead us. And the first thing he says is into false belief. And yeah. then despair and other great shame and vice. When it, when it comes to our conception of, of sin and the things that the devil tempts us into, I think we often default to sins against the second table, the sins that we commit against our neighbors, what Luther labels their other great shame and vice. But the, the devil's goal, first and foremost, is to lead us into false belief. To, to, and I love the way you said it concerning Eve, to give Eve false teaching, to mix orthodoxy and heterodoxy into that that potion of of death that they that they drank i guess they ate and and so <laughs> fell into right. I, I mix my metaphors <laughs> but you get what i'm saying yes. it, is is that this is always the devil's goal is is ultimately to lead us not i mean if he can get us into great shame and vice that's great and, and we shouldn't we shouldn't desire that by any means but his real goal is always false belief. And and I, I think you're right with the way you say it, that, that every attack, attack against the truth that the church faces is demonic in nature. And, and we need to recognize that so that we understand just how important it is for us to hold on to sound doctrine, which is one of St. Paul's biggest points in this whole epistle, probably his biggest. Mm. Yeah. Think about this. If you, if you come to grips with this truth, uh, your understanding of what is called spiritual warfare like magnifies by a factor of 10 before you thought spiritual warfare is, uh, you know, the scary stuff that you watch in the horror films, or you used to gossip about when you were teenagers around the campfire that, you know, somebody could be directly possessed by a demon or something. Right. Uh, wh what this means is that instead of the demons being rare and possibly not even real, the demons are very present and active and fighting relentlessly against the church with, with what? With lies, with the false teaching. And they're using, uh, uh, you know, these, these false teachers to achieve their goal, which is to, to murder, you know, to spiritually murder us. 
and to murder our faith. But they're trying to get us to fall into the sin of apostasy, which is the sin against the Holy Spirit, the hardening of our hearts. And St. Paul's going to talk about this in just a in just a moment here, you know. Yeah, and I think I think we'll pick that up on the other side of the break before we start that conversation. You're listening to Sharper Iron here on KFUL. We'll be right back. Please stick around. Since 1978, Lutheran Church Extension Fund has had the humble privilege of supporting Lutheran Church Missouri Synod Ministries and her workers. Thanks to faithful investors, LCEF has provided thousands of church workers, congregations, schools, and organizations with the low-cost loans and resources they need to reach more people with the saving name of Christ. To learn more, visit lcef.org or call 800-843-5233. Welcome back to Sharper Iron. It is Friday, October 30th. We're looking at 1 Timothy 4, verses 1 through 5. We've got Pastor Brian Flammy with us. He serves at Emmanuel Lutheran Church in Roswell, New Mexico. Pastor Flammy, prior to the break, we were looking at verse 1 of the text, and, and that takes us into verse 2, that that those who that they've devoted themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons, he says, then through the insincerity of liars, whose consciences are seared. Let's talk a little bit particularly about this matter of of consciences being seared. What does Paul mean there? Yeah, so maybe it might be helpful to think about what is a conscience. Uh, It's not Jiminy Cricket, I don't think. (laughs) (laughs) So did you ever see that movie Pinocchio when you were a kid? Yeah, I, I know the song better. Always let your conscience be your guide. It's been a while since I've watched the whole movie. Yeah, yeah. So so this is the Disney world the Disney World worldview, we could call it, version of the conscience. It's basically whatever your heart tells you to do, mm. right? So uh, all of the world's preaching and teaching concerning following direction from your heart and you'll end up on the right path. I think that goes right in line with uh, how a contemporary person would use the word conscience. They'd say, well, that's the testimony of the heart. Now, what's funny about that is, is, is that the heart in and of itself, according to Christ, is, is uh, uh, polluted, filthy, the source of all sin and iniquity. <laughs> uh, he, uh, Jesus has a very low opinion of the human heart. And so... From a Christian worldview, from a biblical worldview, the problem is that the the human heart has to be cleansed from the the pollution of sin that stains it. And in fact, we would say it's a killing and damning pollution. And that comes through the word of the gospel, you know, that cleanses our hearts and purifies us to serve uh, uh, the living God, right? and, and, And so when we think about the conscience, uh, sometimes we could think of it. I, I think it's right to think about it in, uh, in, uh, in Romans. He talks about it bearing witness uh, against us and even for us. I, it, it, that, that is the function of the conscience is like a courtroom of the heart. It's the moral arbiter of human action. Now, apart from Christ and the word of absolution, it's justifying sin and saying, you're not that bad of a person. Uh, that you don't stand under God's judgment and wrath. In fact, I think you've done quite a good job in, in uh, you know, being a decent human being. And so if you do die and there is some kind of reckoning in afterlife, you know what, you'll, you'll probably be okay. Well, that's one way the conscience, I suppose, could go apart from Christ, but it can always judge against you to the point of abject despair, uh, to the point where you are so pitiful and worthless because of the wicked and evil things that you've done that you do not deserve the gift of life. You know, and so Luther, from time to time, will talk about people who have been attacked by the demons and dragged into into the darkest pits of, of despair that ought, that sometimes even result in in the, in the tragedy of, of suicide or something like this. Now, the Christian conscience is quite different. The Christian conscience is where the testimony of heaven, which is the preaching of the forgiveness of sins that Christ does on our behalf before the father. Uh, this is now. Because of the word and the Holy Spirit in the word, this comes to our hearts. And now the testimony of heaven 
which is that Christ says about you, you know, I've died for Pastor Apple, is now reflected in your heart. Uh, when you say, when the Holy Spirit testifies within you as your paraclete, right? Saying that Christ has died for you and you are forgiven. That's the promise of the gospel. And the promise of the gospel is what makes that courtroom of the conscience from being very evil and uh, sort of the anti-justification tool of the devil to now being uh, something that's good and holy and precious because the judgments of the heart have now come to reflect the judgments of heaven. Does that make sense? It, it does. And so if, if yeah. that's what the Christian conscience is, that has the yes. testimony of heaven ruling yes. there, such right. that, that I do believe what God has spoken to me in the scriptures, then the seared conscience would be the opposite of that. That that yeah. and, and seared perhaps even even to almost like a I'm thinking in terms of like Pharaoh's hardened heart, that mm. that sort of seared, that it's mm-hmm. it's not just I haven't heard the gospel, but I've heard the gospel and I've rejected it. Yeah. No, so this is great. Uh, I was reading an old Lutheran commentator on uh, the story of King David. And he used this expression when he talked about David's sin, first against Bathsheba and then against Uriah. And he said, in this, David's conscience slept. Like it, it lost sense. It, it didn't poke and, and prod and, and, and remind him of, of who he is as, in fact, a Christian, you know. And so, did you, of course, did David know the sixth commandment? Yes. Did he know the, the uh, you know, the tenth commandment? You shall not covet your neighbor's wife. Of course. Did he know the fifth commandment that you shall not murder? Yes. Did he know that uh, Uriah, even though a Gentile, was yet, you know, someone had, who had been included by faith into God's kingdom? Of course he knew that. And so every act of that story of David sinning against Bathsheba and sinning, his, and sinning against Uriah and, and, and sinning against, the, you know, the truth of God's word did something to deaden his conscience. Mm. And perhaps to, to do what, say, as a great example of what St. Paul is say, saying, talking about here, it, it was searing the conscience. Now, to sear something, I don't know, have you ever had a scalding burn on your hands, like your hands, one of the most sensitive parts of your body, right? Yeah. Yeah. That's, it's not a pleasant feeling. Yeah. Yeah. So one time when I was a long time ago, a young man and shooting a weapon many, 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 many times uh, for whatever stupid reason, I thought it would be great if I just picked up my weapon by the barrel uh, near where the muzzle is. And as I did, so you could hear the searing of meat. Yeah, right. And then I pulled my hand back and I and in a very undignified way, I screamed like a little girl. Right. And then I found water and poured it on my hand. And in that portion of my hand, uh, I did not I did not have feeling for months, for months. Right. Because the flesh was seared. And so, I, I mean, somebody could poke me with a needle there a couple of months later and I wouldn't be able to feel anything. Right. Somebody could touch it gently or even press on it somewhat hardly. And I, I would I would not feel it. And so the, to, to sin against the word of God when we are Christians, and that is to, to is to sin against is, I think, what, what Jesus talks about. In John, chapter eight, uh, or no, 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 I'm going to back up here. I was looking at the wrong reference. Mark, chapter three, verse twenty nine, when it says that, you know, the, the sins committed against the son of man will be forgiven but not the sins against the Holy Spirit. Uh, and I think that the sins against the Holy Spirit are faith-killing sins. Instead of you know, rejoicing in the, in the gift of the, of the good conscience, right, that reflects the testimony for us in heaven, now I'm sinning against it and knowingly and even willingly. And when that happens, faith departs because the Holy Spirit departs. And we can't have faith apart from the, the presence of the Holy Spirit. So the old, the old Lutherans used to make a distinction between mortal and venial sins, not in the way that the Roman Catholics did. You know, the Roman Catholics would say, this sin is mortal, that sin is venial, and they'd categorize them according to type. For the Lutherans, the, the sin is venial, right? If it grieves the conscience and you seek forgiveness, then that sin cannot kill you. A sin is mortal, that it is, kills your spiritual life if you sin against the word of God that you know and have been catechized in and been brought up in, 
If you sin against that word, break the second commandment with intent, uh, and then faith departs. You can't remain in the faith that way. Well, and, and that's that's what Paul has said up up mm. in the verse one, right? In later times, some will depart from the faith. That's that's what he's talking about. He's not talking about, I mean, to use that, that same category, he's talking about mortal sins here, those that have seared the conscience and you've departed from the faith. Now, this false teaching that we've been talking about but haven't talked about specifically yet is mentioned in verse three. Paul says that mm. these these liars whose consciences are seared, what are they teaching? They're forbidding marriage. And they're requiring abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving. So, Pastor Flamey, there's a lot to talk about here. Why why are they forbidding marriage and requiring abstinence? What's wrong with that? And, like, is this still a problem in the church today? Great question. And let's try to tackle this by by thinking historically for a while. Uh, So there was such a thing as... uh, a virtue of chastity and virginity in the ancient world, which we've really lost nowadays. I mean, maybe our great grandparents had this, but nowadays after in the wake of the sexual revolution, chastity and especially, especially virginity is something that's, that's even despised, right? There's something wrong with you. If you're a virgin, it wasn't that quite the same way in the ancient world. Uh, virginity bodily virginity was seen as uh, something that reflected a moral and inward uh, integrity and purity. And so even among the pagans, there was something to it. Now, the problem is when uh, the problem is <laughs> when the when the bonds of marriage, which are so highly exalted by God in the fourth and the, and the sixth commandments are transgressed for the sake of an, of an righteousness that is not Christ. We're talking about spiritual righteousness that avails before God. Right. We're talking about justifying righteousness, the, the righteousness that you can hold before God on the last day and say that I am I am certain of my right to stand before you today. That righteousness is supplied by Christ alone, according to the Bible. But here the righteousness has been supplanted by by uh, this idea of despising marriage. Right. And holding fast to something that is in and of itself a virtue, chastity or, or virginity. Uh, but now has been used as something to supplant the place where Christ should be. And so even though it's a good thing in and of itself, once it tries to take Christ off of the throne, the divine throne of worship and his righteousness and sets itself up there as the chief thing that you should be aiming for, then it becomes a terrible, terrible idol, right? And a faith-killing idol. And and, And we know that the abstinence from foods was a problem at that time in the New Testament church, uh, it, it, it's it, because, you know, you had the Judaizers who were following in the wake of the apostles and they would, you know, show up at the churches of Galatia and Corinth and, and e, probably Ephesus, you know, as the apostles went through their circuit of visiting the churches, the, the super apostles, as they St. Paul sometimes calls them, would follow in their wake and say, OK, I'm glad that St. Paul is just here to tell you about Jesus and the righteousness of faith. But now we are going to tell you about the works that you that you have to do along with faith for righteousness before God. And then they would add in a distinction of foods. And do you remember how St. Peter got caught up in this when the when the Judaizers showed up? And uh, even though he had been eating Gentile foods with the Gentiles, he suddenly switched over uh, to to uh, the pure and approved foods of the old law. And St. Paul had to rebuke him to his face. And, it, it, and he rebuked him because uh, St. Peter threatened the righteousness of Christ. And no matter what it is, no matter what kind of uh, history it might have and, and, and sort of traditional virtue might surround it, if anything supplants the righteousness of Christ, it is the worst sin and the epitome of evil. So just to, to, to make the point then, the matter of chastity is not bad. That that no. and and the matter of remaining single is not evil, but it's it's the forbidding of marriage. It's it's the forbidding that's the problem. Yes. In the same way that is it okay for a Christian not to eat certain foods for for whatever reason that might be? As long I mean you know like I'm going to try to t- take care of my body, so I'm going to avoid that particular food. That's not a that's not an ungodly decision, but it's the require the requirement of abstinence, that's where it's going too far, that you're trying to 
by these and and, and isn't it i mean it's, it's telling that it ends up going beyond what god actually says when, mm. whenever we try to supplant christ's righteousness with our own righteousness we never make use of the righteousness that god describes according to his law we always go beyond it is i mean isn't mm-hmm. th- that's always something I, I think that that we we do that we go beyond what he says and and we're supplanting his righteousness with our own that's the real issue so it was mm-hmm. a, a problem in, in paul's day mm. and it's well it's probably a problem in ours too yes okay so this is uh, where I think it's appropriate and good. Uh, somebody should, in the background right now, start playing A Mighty Fortress is Our God <laughs> to talk about how various uh, prophecies were made at the time of the apostles concerning the man of lawlessness, and as St. John calls him, uh, the Antichrist. And though he, he talks about Antichrist and then Antichrists, plural, also. It's whatever stands in the place of Christ and supplants the preaching of the gospel, his righteousness for you that you have by faith alone. Uh, in Second uh, Thessalonians, chapter 2, no, I'm going to have to use my fingers to flip open to it. In Second Thessalonians, chapter 2, uh, you have this, this great description of what will happen. All right, here it is. So he says, let no one deceive you. So this is St. Paul writing to the Thessalonians. Let no one deceive you in any way. For that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things, right? And so this man of lawlessness takes the highest position possible, even within what we might call the visible church, the temple of God, where God ought to be dwelling and ruling with his the righteousness and peace through the preaching of word and sacrament. Instead, you have somebody there who leads people astray, claiming to sit in that place. And this is what our, our Lutheran confessions say in uh, the treatise on the power and primacy of the Pope. Moreover, The marks of the Antichrist clearly fit the reign of the Pope and his minions. For describing the Antichrist to the Thessalonians, Paul calls him an adversary of Christ, who exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, declaring himself to be God. So the Pope, speaking from his office as the sole representative of Christ on this earth, even to the point where what he says concerning the interpretation of scriptures go, and what he says concerning the, the unwritten apostolic traditions must be, uh, you know, the binding law of consciences in the church and in the world. Uh, it got to the point where, where the Pope had so obscured Christian teaching to the point where people had no confidence and certainty of their salvation. And then you had it, it, it led to to such a state where, you know, you had men like uh, Tetzel wandering the, the countryside, selling indulgences uh, for people who were terrified of the flames of hell and purgatory. And, 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 and not only that, uh, you had also the pope and, and his minions preaching a righteousness to be obtained by works and not the righteousness of faith alone. So that it was a more, more exalted thing in this life to uh, enter into uh, the spiritual life of a monastery or a convent or, or uh, to take on the oaths necessary to become a priest. And in that way, what was despised? Well, the high and exalted state of marriage, which is supposed to order our lives, and the exalted state of a family. And yet the family and marriage were being despised by people who were trying to escape from an earthly life and live a more spiritual life because this was the approved doctrine of the Roman church you know, with the, with the approval of the Pope. Now, Luther, thanks be to God, uh, read the Holy Scriptures and through the illumination of the Holy Spirit in those Holy Scriptures, discovered the righteousness of faith alone, the righteousness of, of God, which is a gift, not something to be obtained by works. And, and that righteousness that comes from Christ alone reordered everything that Luther understood about the about who God is and what the scriptures say. And so and you remember reading this. Is it in, uh, help me to remember, in his introduction to the Latin works where he talks about his tower experience? 
Ah, that sounds right. I'm not sure if it's la- <laughs> yeah, but it is. It is in one of those introductions. I believe you're correct. So once he discovers the righteousness of God, right, which is a gift to him uh, f- from God, and he has by the passive faith alone, right, then Luther tears through the Holy Scriptures and he sees faith that saves everywhere, everywhere, and everything that he knew about obtaining salvation. Uh, through his uh, labor and works came to an end. Uh, Certainly didn't come to an end historically all at once for Luther, but quickly over the course of like four or five years, he came to depend on what we call the solo scripture alone, which taught God's grace alone, that God has chosen you uh, for the sake of Christ alone. And that that grace is received by faith alone, which is the opposite of works. Uh, Now, that is the true doctrine that spiritually saves. And thanks be to God that he granted Luther and the other reformers to be illumined by that apostolic teaching, that apostolic doctrine. And we can see here, this is the great part, we can see here in the apostolic word warnings about the false righteousness that would be foisted on the church by people who are saying, like like you were were talking about, by people who are saying, you know what's really, really righteous? Uh, not just faith in Christ, but of course, to abstain from marriage hmm. <laughs> or to not eat meat on Fridays or during Lent. If you do that, then you can be more certain of a place in heaven. Hmm. Thanks be to God that, you know, as, as, as we uh, see in history, God continues to intervene and to work whenever people uh, uh, discover the word and are reformed by it, you know. And, and uh, so even though uh, St. Paul warns us against the demonic doctrines that lead to death. Nevertheless, uh, the, 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 the righteousness of Christ shines forth and fights back and the church prevails, you know, resting not on our works or by our own wits or strength, but resting on the truth of who Christ is and what he has done to win the victory already for us. Hmm. You, you commented before we got on the air, Pastor Flamia, that you thought this was a, a Reformation text. And, and listening to you, I, I think you're exactly right. That And tomorrow, or yeah, I mean, we're recording this early, but, but tomorrow when this airs is October 31st, the anniversary of those 95 theses. And, and so, I mean, I think the same themes that Luther addressed in the Reformation, Paul addresses here. Now, we've got about seven minutes left, and I want to make sure we talk about verses four and five. How do verses four and five, everything created by God is good and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving, for it is made holy by the word of God in prayer. How does that fit into Paul's argument here? Yeah. So you were talking about uh, how man-made righteousness goes beyond the law necessarily, right? That's the, that's sort of the heart and center of Pharisaism and Pharisaism, not just of the first century Jewish variety, but of all stripes. Hmm. Uh, that people have come up with another legal system of righteousness, another legal system of of works to obtain uh, uh, not only uh, the approval of men, but they also assume now that I have the approval of men, now I also have the approval of God, right? So what does St. Paul remind us? Instead of despising marriage, instead of despising foods, he says everything created by God is good. Everything created by God is good. Marriage isn't a contractual agreement entered into by two willing parties, uh, you know, for them to, to stay in when it's convenient and when it gets tough, they, you know, they could walk away. That's how people think of marriage nowadays in our culture. Uh, marriage is a divine and heavenly work. It is part of the crescendo of creation on the sixth day, right? It's it's what uh, so Adam receives from God, his wife, Eve, and then God blesses them and tells them to be fruitful and to multiply. And you have wonderful promises about marriage. And then when Jesus repeats those promises, I think it is in uh, what Matthew chapter nine. Maybe I'm wrong about 19, I think. Uh, Yeah, 19. Thank you. When Jesus repeats those promises in Matthew chapter 19, he goes a step beyond Moses and says, before what God has joined together let not man separate. And so in the apostolic word, right, in Jesus's preaching, in the preaching of Moses, in the, in the true word, which is the bedrock of the, the true church, you see the high and exalted place of marriage. And to forbid marriage in any way, shape or form is to, is to say that, uh, uh, that God is a liar, 
right? That's that sin against faith that we were talking about. What about the matter of, of foods and, and mm. how does that play? We've got about four minutes here. Okay, four minutes. Uh, for the matter of foods, jump to the book of Acts, if you're taking notes at home. Uh, go to chapter 10, and then look at, let's see, Peter's vision. So this is something like, so Peter goes to sleep on the roof. It's pretty hot. He goes into a trance, and then uh, he has a vision. And this is what he saw. Something like a great sheet descending, drawn down by its four corners upon the earth, in it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air. There came a voice to him, rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, by no means, Lord, for I have never let any, uh, anything, I've never eaten anything that is common or unclean. And the voice came to him a second time, what God has made clean, do not call common. Now, this happened three times so that Peter would understand not just, of course, that all foods are, are uh, that all things that, that God has created in this world are good for human use and even for consumption for food, but also to teach that the, the way of, of living as the Gentiles lived is not to exclude one from the kingdom of heaven because uh, they also have been died for by Jesus, right? That's the, the, the deep lesson there. And so anyone who still insists on the distinction of foods for the sake of heavenly righteousness has, has not seen or is denying God's inclusion of the Gentiles into his heavenly kingdom. With just two minutes left, Pastor Fleming, tie this all together. Give us the goods, the righteousness that is ours in Christ from this text. We are zealous in the Lutheran church to guard, to guard our teaching, the doctrine. That doctrine isn't a scary word. And in fact, it is a necessary word. In the teaching, you have the voice of your Savior, Jesus, who sets you free from, from your sins and from death and the power of the devil, right? Uh, in the true teaching, you have the, the true understanding of what belongs to the law, God's commandments, and what belongs to the gospel, what God has done to save you for Christ's sake alone. And so never, never uh, be too concerned <laughs> That, that in, in meditating on the doctrine and the importance of doctrine that your church has somehow gone astray. In fact, you're doing the very thing that's, that Jesus and the apostles say that you must do. Because if we lose that teaching of law and gospel, of the righteousness of Christ, uh, then we are not, no longer of Christ. We're going to be of the world, right? And so insist on your Bible studies, right? Insist that your pastor preach the truth of the scriptures and not the headlines from the pulpit. If your pastor and, and your teachers in this life are careful to do that, you will retain Christ and you will retain the truth that sets you free. Pastor Brian Flammy is the pastor at Emmanuel Lutheran Church in Roswell, New Mexico, helping us this morning with 1 Timothy 4, verses 1 through 5. Pastor Flammy, thanks for being our guest today. Thank you, Pastor Apple. Great being here. False teaching existed in the time of Paul. False teaching is still rampant today. It may sound appealing, but it comes from the father of lies who seeks to draw you away from Christ. Listen to Christ instead. Listen to his truth that righteousness is not found in you or in the law or anything that you can accomplish. It is found in Christ, in him alone, in what he has done for you. I'm your host here on Sharper Iron, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. Thanks for spending the morning with us. Talk to you again next week.